Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Megan Jasper. Megan currently works for Sub Pop Records as the label's CEO. She started working for Sub Pop in 1989 and eventually went back to the label in 1998. Before working at Sub Pop, she was the Northwest sales representative for five years for Alternative Distribution Alliance, a music company that distributes mostly independent music to retailers in the US. Megan has volunteered and served on numerous boards, including SCBWI, the Service Board, the Vera Project, and she served as a Seattle Music Commissioner for six years. She is currently on KEXP's Board of Directors. When she isn't working, volunteering, or listening to music, she's training for triathlons and hanging out with her family. Brian, Yogi Bear, Claw, and Pickles. Welcome, Megan. So good to see you. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. Thanks for having me. I totally appreciate it. Of course. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. So if you uh, were in a band and it was your band, what would it be called? Oh my God. That's um, a tough, tough one, right? I mean, I guess if it were just me, I, I mean, I've, it's so funny. I've never been asked that question. Oh, well, good. Um, I'm so, so happy to be unique. Yeah, maybe I would just call <laughs> it Jasper. <laughs> nice. And do you play any instruments? No, I, well, I have a piano in the house and I tinker around on it, but I'm terrible at it. So I do it just for my own fun. Yeah. And what about sing? Can you sing? No, I'm tone deaf, but I was in a band um, and I screamed. Oh, that's perfect. So do you yeah. karaoke? Um, I do like karaoke. I'm pretty terrible at it, but I feel like I can yeah. ham it up. And so um, I don't mind that so much. You can, you can be one of those people that picks one of those songs that everybody sings over each other. And so you can just disguise yourself as like a really good singer. Yeah. Or I turn it into a punk rock version and just yell the lyrics. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> um, okay. So do you remember, I'm sure you do. We all do. What was your very first concert? Uh, my very first concert. Well, it was Pat and Debbie Boone and I was a little kid and, um, and I thought it was amazing. But the first concert that I got tickets for just for myself, uh, that was the Plasmatics in Worcester, Massachusetts. And it was amazing. And Wendy O blew up a TV on the stage and just smashed the shit out of a ton of, you know, objects. It was pretty amazing. I've never actually been to that type of concert. I would have probably freaked out. <laughs> that sounds fun. And so if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Ooh, I would like to fly. Yeah. Where would you go? Um, I Anywhere, because I just love looking. 
I like a, a different point of view. And I think I would totally enjoy just seeing the world that way. So the flying part, not the teleporting part, not the like ability to be somewhere else, but more the ability to be up high and look down. I would love that. I would also love the ability to bilocate, but um, I will, I do, I do meditation. And one day I kind of dream of being able to bilocate, but until then I would just love to be able to fly. I was going to ask if you have a spiritual practice. I don't know why I have that in there. That is so funny. I totally do. I started doing TM about 26 years ago, but I would also say that I think I was doing kind of my own version of meditation before then. And I did that through running, but I I've learned that when I run and when I swim, I go into sort of a different kind of meditation. And I think it's all the same for the most part. I want you to just tell our listeners, cause I've started researching transcendental meditation, but like what it is, I actually wrote to um, a center in Bellevue. Yeah. And then I got intimidated because it's long, like it takes a long time and it's frequent. Yeah. I think you're like daily. How long do you, when you're not doing like training for a triathlon or swimming or biking or running, how much time are you dedicating to it? I, I meditate at least once for 20 minutes a day. There are yeah. times when it's just hard to get in more than that. Um, on a good day, I'll meditate twice for 20 minutes. And on a really wow. good day, I'll meditate for an hour. Um, wow. At one point in my life, I was meditating for two hours a day, but that felt like a lot to keep up with. It sounds like a big time commitment. And my next rapid fire question, <laughs> which is also just weird energetically, is swimming, biking, or running? I love, and I'll I'll, we'll come back to the meditation thing because there's so much to talk about with that. But, um, you know, right now it's running, but I, I, I love all three sports and my favorite changes all the time between the three. How long, what kind of distance are you doing for these triathlons? I usually do Olympic distance. The more you do them, they feel less hard and more fun, but exhausting. But mm -hmm. there's something really special about triathlons because you can't do three sports and not have curveballs. And I like that, that there are two things I love the most about it. One is it really teaches you to roll with whatever is about to happen in front of you. Um, because you have to react and just deal with it. And then the other thing is when you're training and you do a little bit more one week than you did the week prior, um, it feels really good. And I think it allows for you to live in a space where anything is possible because you're doing things that you didn't think were possible two months earlier. So mm -hmm. when you're, you just, you know, you, if you just stay on track and you keep doing it and you keep training, you improve. And I like living in that space of, you know, anything is possible. It's just developing a plan to get there. I love that. Are you always training for a triathlon? And how many do you do typically per year? I, 
I usually do anywhere between, I do at least one triathlon a year, but sometimes I've done like four or five in a year, but I also maybe will do a half marathon. So mm -hmm. I'm always, I always have something that I'm training for. Mm -hmm. And so the, when you're doing this type of meditation, how did you get into it to begin with 20 um, years ago? So uh, I was introduced to it by my boss, Jonathan, who kind of grew up doing TM. And he knew that I was totally open to, um, he knew I was totally open to meditation. I had been going to see this woman, Ama, who um, travels the world and gives hugs to people. And she's a guru to some I know, folks. I know, Amma, my, I know, I know who she is. Yeah. I, I love Amma. And, um, and so I, and I was reading a lot of books about gurus and, um, and I really tapped in, have you ever read Victor Frankl's books? Um, he wrote, he's written, he wrote a lot of books, but he wrote one book called Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. And it really had this profound effect on me. And I, I still to this day, I think about that book all the time. But it, there was something about um, understanding will and meaning and, and, and being able to put meaning to suffering. So um, it resonated with me. And in my conversations with Jonathan, I think he just realized I was very open to meditation and, and he made it possible for me to learn the TM technique. And the TM technique, I've done other types of meditation, but it is so effective. And, and it's just, a, it's just a, a, a pretty great, technology for it. So, um, and it works for me. So I, I'm, I'm grateful back, for I'm it. I'm going to look back and do it. I did write down the book. Um, and this is so funny because I always tell people, okay, we're in rapid fire. And usually I'm the one driving, like, let's like move forward. And I'm the one yeah. slowing, slowing us down because I'm very <laughs> fascinated by what we're talking about. Um, and now I'm like switching gears completely. Favorite swear word. Fuck. <laughs> me too. Yay. I love you. I mean, you, it can't be beat. And it made me happy when I listened to a few of your things. I'm like, this, this is my people. You can't, oh, yeah. anyone who doesn't swear or who's anti, I'm like, I don't get it. It's got uh, such yeah. high impact. Yeah. And it just feels good. It, it feels does really feel good. good to drop some F-bombs. And, um, like, you know, I can totally edit myself if I'm around a bunch of old folks or really young kids. Yes. But if I don't have to watch myself, I am fucking psyched not to watch myself <laughs> it feels good i agree <laughs> okay so um what are your favorite three qualities um i guess in a friend like what are the things um, that you most value in your friendships i would say kind funny and honest and what would our listeners or people that know you don't know you um, be surprised to learn about you. I know you're an open book, but like other things that are like, you know, people always get surprised to hear this. Yeah, I um, probably what would be surprising. I mean, 
I guess, I mean, for someone who's like swears and is pretty open, like I'm also super uptight a bunch of, about a bunch of stuff. Um, like what? Like, you know, I like things to be a certain way and I don't like having things hanging. Um, I don't like letting things fester. I, I'm uptight about timing and um, and dealing with things. I I if I can't deal with something in real time, it makes me insane. Um, yeah, well, that's just called, that's, I mean, that's called being efficient and being successful. Yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily call yourself uptight. I think that you are particular and that's okay. I am super particular. Yes. But that's actually, that's just saying I'm high standards. And to me, that is like, I have a bar. And to me, yeah. as a person who wants to be around you, that makes me want to be better. Like I want to that... be like privileged enough to be in your circle versus uh, like, she's uptight. And I'm like, ew, she's going to be like boring and lame. And yeah, <laughs> resting. It's so bitch. funny. They're two yeah, different I, things. They are very different things. And I, I actually appreciate you pointing that out because I, I'm not uptight in that standard way. Um, I'm uptight in that I care very much that um, I can back my words up with action. And I'm uptight about making sure that I'm aligned. And, and, and my kind of uptight, it, it's more on me yeah. um, than than the world that I'm living in. It's yeah. more that I, I expect a lot of myself and I will beat myself up over it. And so I try really hard to, I just try really hard to feel good about what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. Yeah. So and, you're just trying to do your best. I think that that's why you're, yeah. that's why you're sitting here. Okay. Wait. So tell me, I'm hearing this weird, like not, I know you're not, you're from the East coast, right? Yep. But yep. where? From Worcester, Massachusetts. For some reason, that's what I thought, but for some reason I was hearing this Canadian something. I don't so, know why. Is there someone in your family that's Canadian? No, it's it's my fucked up accent because I my Worcester accent was so bad for so long that people couldn't understand what I was saying. And so I I now try really hard to to like just be understood oh. and it's it's i've ended up developing this new fucked <laughs> up so accent funny. that probably that doesn't hilarious. even exist anywhere so okay so you're little you're like second grade fifth grade is it the same person that we're meeting today or have you had like different versions i've kind of been like this is shauna same shauna i haven't really changed my whole That's life a that's so funny. I think I've changed so much. So when I was a little kid, I, I would, I was cripplingly shy. I was so shy. I had a hard time just jumping into social situations. I loved being around people, but I have vivid memories of like an electrician coming over and me hiding under the table, seeing his shoes and, and being mortified when he ducked his head down and said hello to me under the table. I was like, ah! um, I was super quiet in school. I hated speaking up. I, in the second grade, I remember the teacher asking, I think I had to answer a simple, uh, like three plus seven, three plus four e equals. And I, 
she wanted me to say seven. And I remember almost whispering the number and she said, what? And I said, seven. And she said, we can't hear you yell it. And I couldn't, I just went seven. I couldn't like, I couldn't yell it. I was so Mm -hmm. quiet and shy and, um, and I actually remember the moment I kind of came out of my shell and it was in junior high. I think I was in the seventh or eighth grade. And I was, I was like in the playground, just chatting, hanging around with some, some other girls and one of the tough girls came up and kind of threatened to beat me up. And I remember kind of poking fun back at her when she came at me and I couldn't believe I was doing it, but I think I realized I had nothing to lose. And the girls all started laughing at her and she got pissed, but she actually walked away. And it was this moment when I realized that that humor was my friend. And I think I had a sense of humor, but I didn't have the confidence or the balls to just like say fuck fuck it. it. (laughs) Yeah. To use my fucking voice. And, and I changed like that moment changed me. Wow. And so second grade was kind of quiet, quiet, quiet. I'm always so curious. I've never been quiet. Um, (laughs) And, and sometimes when, you know, you see those little, and I don't have any quiet kids. And when you see those kids that are, you know, doing what you're talking about, holding onto their mom's leg and kind of hiding behind. Yeah, I um, did that. I'm always curious, is that like a nature nurture thing? It, and then you see the parents that kind of encourage it. And, you know, the, it, was your mom kind of trying to dry you out or being like, oh, no, she's just shy? I think that they just felt like I was shy. And then I think also, so I have a sister who's 15 months older and she would often talk for me. Mm. And, and so I learned that she would just take care of whatever, you know, she would just speak for me. Yeah. I, I remember being, I think I was three years old. I can't believe I remember this so clearly, but uh, there was an ice cream truck at the pool that we used to go to. And Oh no, we were actually, we were at the beach when we did this. And my grandmother gave my sister a quarter to go get an ice cream, a quarter. I was going to say, you just call it what it is. It's a quarter. It's a quarter. And my sister came back with an ice cream and I really wanted one. And my grandmother said, gave me, gave me a quarter, a quarter and said, Mm -hmm. go get an ice cream. And I don't remember asking. I remember I got a nutty buddy, but, um, I remember coming back with the ice cream and they knew I clearly had asked for it. Uh, but my grandmother said, she can talk, she can do it. She's just not. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have a brother who's 15 months older than me also, but, nice. and he, he's also not shy even a little bit. Um, but I can see that, that if you had the older sibling and so is she yeah. still, um, is that a dynamic, you know, like it's so interesting that you take family dynamics into your thirties, forties, fifties, you know, yeah, they stay. You know, what's interesting is I feel like we flipped. I am way more chatty in any situation than she is. Yeah. And 
uh, but she, she's, she can chat. She's like, she reminds me of my grandmother. My grandmother could like just chat forever. Um, and, but I would say she probably has a little bit more social anxiety than I have. I, I don't feel like I have a whole lot of social anxiety. Yeah. Well, you're made up for lost time. You're like, you know, those <laughs> er- early days, you're like, I got, I got business and I know, like all the socializing to do. Where was I in like first grade? I know. I'm like, I have shit to do, man. I got some shit to do. So what's crazy to me is that I read that you got a DJ gig when you were 15 years old. I'm like, that's not that long after threatening that little girl in seventh grade. Like seventh grade is like 13. So within a couple of years, you're like, look out, there's a new boss in town. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) what happened. Um, In that period of time between like the playground and the DJ, I discovered punk rock. It totally changed my life. It gave me confidence. It gave me a real, like more developed sense of identity. It gave me a community that I felt like I belonged to. Was it Um, the Mohawk? uh, That that became part of it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it was really like, I loved everything about it. I loved the message. I loved that. I loved the whole DIY aspect. I loved that you didn't have to be uh, like a, a trained musician to make music or to, you know, a published writer to want to write. Like, I love that the message was, if you want to do this, just go fucking do it. That, that really kind of blew me away and spoke to me. And I took it all to heart. Yeah. And so for the, for like my kids who may or may not know what punk rock is or not may or may not be, my kids have like a wide range of music taste, but what was it about? I mean, you said like that open canvas, kind of like the world is your oyster. You can kind of do whatever. What specifically, like what music was your favorite? And do you remember that moment of like really feeling the music? Cause I think music is so powerful. Yes, it was. So at that time, it was a band called the Buzzcocks that I immediately just totally fell in love with their music. And it sounded to me like sped up pop music, which it kind of is. And but it was just it felt so smart and so like there was a ferocity to it. And um, and I and it was fun, but, yeah. but also, so I loved the Buzzcocks. I loved the clash. I loved yeah. uh, the sex pistols. I loved the Ramones. The Did you like the Ramones? I liked the Ramones a lot. And, yeah. um, and I, I love that there was also that message. I loved crass. Oh my God. I still, I still love all of that music. Yeah. Um, but I love that there was a message of, of question authority and mm-hmm. because I, felt like there were a lot of things in the world that needed to be questioned and the world seemed kind of fucked up and and it always will feel that way and it always will be that way but i loved that this music and the scene and this message it made me feel like even just as a little kid in worcester mass a teenager that i had the power and authority to try to create a world that felt better for me and felt fair and and maybe a world that didn't discard people so easily you know especially as a kid who felt like a misfit so 
I, I loved that. And I went, I went all in. It sounds like you went all in. And so how did you land that DJ gig? Um, So there were so many good radio stations back East, especially at that time, there were way more, like there were so many in New England because there were so many colleges. So in Worcester, we had WICN, which was an NPR station that had music programming in the evening. We had WCUW that was a community radio station that did music programming in the evening. And we had WCHC, which was the Holy Cross station. And somehow I was able to get training at WCHC. Um, And so I remember going there and learning how to use the turntables. And I remember just, I remember going through the process, but I had one of my best friends, um, Judy had a sister, Joanne, and Joanne had a radio show on WICN. And Joanne spoke to um, Mark Lynch, who still is at WICN. He went by the, his DJ name was Uncle Mark. And Uncle <laughs> I Mark, have an Uncle Mark. That's so awesome. Oh my God, that's so funny. Uncle Mark loved the idea of having these teenage punk girls um, maybe have a show. And those girls were me, my sister, Mara, and Judy. And and he gave us a 3 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. shift. It was Friday night, Saturday morning. My parents didn't give a shit because it kept us out of trouble. We had to go to bed early on Friday night, wake up, do the show. We would take a nap and but it, you know what? It gave us something really positive to and focus on. And a total sense of purpose. What was the family culture like or the family values, I guess, was it? And, and also that area, um, is it like a middle class area? Like, I don't know that area of Massachusetts. Yeah. So we were um, a total middle class family. And that's mostly what Worcester is is made of. Uh Worcester is an old mill town. So like lots of old factories that had shut down. There are beautiful old brick buildings everywhere. As a little kid, I always thought they were super ugly. But when I go back now, I'm like, God, they they really are incredibly beautiful buildings. Um, and a lot of them are repurposed now. But but it was a real kind of blue collar uh, city and and my parents were both school teachers Um, my dad was the first one in his family to go to college and my both of my parents really valued education almost everyone in my family is a school teacher i'm actually the only one that isn't my mom had two brothers has two brothers they both ended up being lawyers uh, and then we had two nuns in the family, but everyone else is a school teacher. So education was really, really important to the family. Um, both my parents did advanced education when we were kids. My dad got his PhD when I was in the fifth or sixth grade. My, I remember my parents switching and getting their masters at different times. My dad would do his then step back. My mom got hers. She'd step back. My dad went and got his doctorate, um, but they just kind of staggered their education and made it work. But wow! But they're they're all educators. My sister has her master's. I'm I'm the least educated person in the family. I 
I have a college degree, but I never got advanced education beyond that. Wow. And where did you get your degree from? I got it from UMass and Amherst. So when you went there, what did you study? And when you thought about like adulting, were you thinking I could actually like make a living in the music industry? Hell no. I thought I was going to be a school teacher. Like um, the rest I, of the family. Yeah, I thought I was I was going to be a school teacher. I it was my dream job. I remember being in the second grade and saying, telling everyone I'm going to be a school teacher. Um, and through school, like in college, I actually majored in I did a SCBWI. It was a um, it it's basically you can develop your own major and um, is it called SCBWI? I think that's what it was called. Anyway, um, I developed my own major in college and my major was writing children's literature. I thought that I was going to be a children's author and that I would end up teaching kids in school. And so I went through the training to set me up to be able to write and to be able to teach. And I did a lot of um, time in classrooms with kids. Interesting. And so then yeah. when you, what did you um, do right when you graduated? Like what was your first kind of? I ran away. I, um, I got a one-way ticket to Berlin. And oh, seriously? I, to Berlin? Yeah, because I minored in German. And I, I love, I really like languages. And so I was learning German, but I loved the music that was coming out of Berlin. Oh, well, yeah, still. I mean. Oh, yeah. I, it's amazing. So, uh, so I bought a one-way ticket and I went to Berlin and then I got an apartment. I moved in. I found, met some people and got wow. a room and and then my friends who were in a band dinosaur junior called me and said uh, on the first uh the first show of their uk european tour their roadie john who's amazing uh he fell in love jumped off the tour and so jay called me the um the main songwriter in the band and said hey can you come and meet us in amsterdam and jump on the tour john fettler just fell in love and jumped off i was like i'll be there tomorrow and so what was your job gonna be you were the, what uh, was the job on the tour i changed guitar strings for jay i made sure no one stole his pedals and craft, um, craft service <laughs> yeah i basically was a roadie uh i helped them like load unload set the stage um you know whatever they needed i just kind of took care of it but it was so much fun i got to travel i got to be around my friends and then i went back to berlin and stayed a little bit longer and then i came back to massachusetts again and i went on tour again were those if you had to say i mean obviously you're in a moment that's incredible right now but you know we all have our chapters of our life would you look back and say like that was the most fucking insane chapter i mean i can't even imagine you're in berlin you're, i mean it sounds so sexy and just magical. it was amazing it was amazing and you know what's funny now is when i look back like i was so fearless about all of it i just bought a ticket one way went out there didn't know anybody but I made it work. And at the time, none of that was daunting. And when I look back now, I'm like, 
that actually took some balls. It took so I many did. balls. I'm so curious where that seventh grade girl is. Like if she just knew like what happened, whatever happened to Megan, like you're like, actually I am yeah. the girl who bought the one-way ticket. I went to Berlin and now, I mean, you know, like where did those balls come from? And, and to know that she's slightly attributable. Yeah. <laughs> I like credit be like, actually. I, I think the balls came from punk rock. Well, the balls came you from know. punk rock, but it's just so crazy. It's so true. Like you look back and you're like, I don't even know what I was thinking at that time. Yeah. I really, I, all I was thinking is this is going to be great. And it was. And it was. It so was the, beyond the dinosaur great. band. It was um, so punk music, it sounds yeah. like. And you were the uh, the everything person. And how long did you do that job before you went kind of back and forth between them? And yeah, I did it. Um, anytime they wanted me to go on tour, I just went. And because I always got to travel and see places I had never seen before. And I remember touring the U.S. and being so amazed at how much the landscape changed and how quickly and I I loved it. And you see cities that, you know, you want to go back to and explore yeah. more of and really see or some where you're like that does, that place doesn't totally, yeah. you know, strike me. But um, but Seattle was one of those places where I was like, I fucking love it here. And I think I could live here. Yeah. And so it was after that tour that I went back home to Massachusetts. I was living in, in Northampton and I worked a little bit more, put all my money aside and moved out to Seattle. And so when you moved out here, um, so I read that you met, um, you met the founders of the company. Um, I did. And that they said to you, like, hey, if you ever move out here, like, let us know and we'll hire yeah, you. That's exactly. Um, so at the Dinosaur Show, which was in, at the Central Tavern in Pioneer Square, they we had um, Tad opened the show and the Screaming Trees were the second band and then Dinosaur Jr. headlined. And it was an amazing show. Um, Susan Silver was the promoter and Susan went off to like become one of the most incredible managers ever. She managed, still co-manages Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, the Screaming Trees for a bit. Um, you know, Nirvana went to her for a minute, uh, but Susan was incredible and, and also did a lot for women um, in music in the Northwest, but, uh, so she was the promoter. Bruce and John were there. They were so kind to me. And they 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 were funny and smart and fun to be around. And they said, let us I said, I think I I think I could live here. And they said, let us know if you come out. And I did. It's like my first full day in Seattle, I went down to the sub pop offices. And you're like, hey, remember me? I'm here. So the company yeah. was founded in 1988. Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan Poneman. 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 Yeah. And um, what what's their kind of origin story of the company and and your involvement? And tell me about. I love hearing these stories. Most of the people who've been on the podcast, some are like hired guns, and some have come up through the ranks, and others are founders. Yeah. Um, so tell me about your story with the company and kind of how you've gotten to where you are with Sub Pop. 
So when I went in there the first day, um, I remember walking into an office and it was just like a shit show of chaos. <laughs> but it, but to me, it looked like the best place in the world. Um, and what I mean by a shit show of chaos is there were pallets of records that were in the middle of the office. There were people buzzing around, uh, like trying to make sense of, I don't even know what. Uh, people were on the phone, people were talking over music, there was music blasting. And I just thought like, oh, this is really fucking awesome. Um, but it was mayhem. Yeah. And Bruce said, I feel so bad, but do you think you could come back tomorrow? It's just a little bit chaotic here. I was like, not a problem. I went back the next day. Um, Bruce and John had decided a year earlier that they were going to try to make this work. And by this, I mean a record label. Um, they were not business people. They were really bright, creative music lovers. And and they didn't want a normal job. They wanted to be a part of the scene that they really cared about. They wanted to contribute and participate and try to make something happen that they thought could be maybe special. So they they had to learn a lot of hard lessons by making a lot of mistakes. And honestly, I had to do the same thing because none of us were trained business people. But when I went in that second day, they asked me straight up if I wanted to intern that day and I was so excited. So I went and I, um, I packaged up records to go to college radio stations and the, it was the cat butt record, um, journey to the center of, and it, I was just so happy to be doing that. And I felt so at home. I felt like this could be my place. It felt like the world was right as I sat on their floor, shoving records into mailers and they came down and asked me if I might be interested in being a receptionist and did I have any experience with phones? And I didn't, but I talked on the phone with a lot of people in my life. So I just said, yes. And I, I learned as I went, but I started, I had a five line phone system. I, I was, it was totally overwhelming. I didn't know how to transfer calls, but I figured it out real fast and i found my place and and it was fucking great and i i i will always remain so grateful that they took a chance on me because the interesting thing is they could have given that job really to anybody and anyone would have been thrilled to work in those offices it was such an amazing environment and with with really good people and and really cool bands. So I felt like I was at the right place at the right time. And I got real lucky. And how many people were there at that time? And how old were you? Um, I was 21. And I think there were maybe seven of us. There was Bruce, oh John, there was someone who did direct sales, Daniel, Mark Pickerel, who was the drummer for the Screaming Trees, worked there. Erica Hunter, who did promotions. Um, Charles Peterson, who's a photographer, who was the UPS person. Hannah, 
who um, uh, did, she did, um, uh, I wanted to say online sales. She did mail order mm. uh, and me. Oh, and Jeff Kirk, who was our accountant. And so, just, so you're 21 years corporate. old, you're answering phones. Yeah. And um, and I, I always encourage those types of roles. I've been, as maybe you know or don't know, but I've been in the recruiting industry for 28 years and in San Francisco and New York, all over. And I've placed people into every industry you can think of and always encourage people to do that type of role if given that opportunity, because you get so much exposure yep. and you can do with it what you want. If you want to just answer the phone and be a passive bystander, no problem, but you're not gonna get the same experience. But if you want to know who's calling, what it's about, yep. try to pay attention, try to get, you know anticipate needs. Yeah. You can really add value quickly in that type of role. And it can be, it can be the, the biggest weapon in the company. And I always um, tell candidates, I mean, nowadays it sounds really outdated, but this is how it works in companies, that the receptionist knows everything. Yeah. I love that you get it. And I always say it's the best job I ever had. I met people so quickly because of the job I had. I learned how the office worked so well. I learned I learned everybody's habits and then I understood how to get like I understood how to get people to call folks back. I had to stay on hold with some people waiting for someone to get off the phone. So you it was multitasking and it was I I, I learned how everyone could put their best foot forward mm -hmm. and it made me happy to be able to contribute to that and to make sure that that office could run as Ran smoothly. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about the part. Jill told me a little bit about this and then I read about it where the New York times called, tell me that story. Cause I think our listeners, so, I love this story. <laughs> So uh, this was in 1992, and at this point, I'd been laid off from Sub Pop because their finances were, they were pretty tough at that point. Um, it didn't ruin any of my relationships. I kind of thought it was a, the universe's way of giving me a kick in the ass and trying to get me to go to graduate school. But, um, but I was taking a year off before making a decision Oh, no, no, no. I had, I'd gone through my year off. I just, I had an epiphany. I didn't have to be a school teacher. I could do music. And I got a job at Caroline Records. Uh, Caroline, I, my job was a Northwest salesperson. I sold records. I loved it. I got to keep working with Sub Pop. So I felt like I was still in the family. And I sold music that I loved to stores that I loved. It was great. And one day my phone rang and it was Jonathan Poneman who said, Hey, you might get a call from the New York times. They're doing something on grunge. And I, I don't know, you're going to have, you're going to have more fun with it than I would. And I'm realizing, I think it was not 1992. It might've been like 93 or four. I can't remember, but anyway, um, but the New York times called and they said they they said we're doing a huge piece on grunge it's going to be in the lifestyle section and we are getting into the mark jacobs 
uh, runway collection that has shaken the world. And we're going to talk about the music from Seattle. And we want, we want to illuminate some of the subculture in Seattle. And I was like, oh, this all, this sounds so bizarre. And I said, so what, tell me what I can help with. And they said, well, you know, most subcultures have a lexicon and we're right. wondering if you can share the grunge right. lexicon with us. And I was like, that's <laughs> seriously. So yeah. So I said, not knowing even what to say, I was like, well, I, I, that's just weird. Like if you just give me words, I'll just give you kind of the grunge translation. Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm just jotting all the shit, like nonsense shit down just so that I had something to kind of work off of. And he started giving me words and I figured I'm just going to start out soft. And so he said like pants and what? I think I said wax lax. Yeah. Like he's like, what do you call torn jeans? And I said, wax lax. And he said, what about like those big clunky boots that people wear? And I said, uh, kickers. And I thought this is just start out easy. And I could hear him. I can hear him doing this. He's just typing everything I say. Oh, jeez. And so then uh, I, he kept going and I was like, okay, this is getting boring now. So I decided to just make it as ridiculous as possible. Um, he's like, what about someone who drinks too much at a show? I was like, a oh, drunk person is like a big bag of bloatation or something like that. And he's not questioning anything I'm saying. And the entire thing ran no one checked it no fact checking no anything and and the the lexicon was just like it was ridiculous it was things like uh like goodbye is um catch on the flippity flop um right on was okie dokie artichokey like i mean i kept saying these things thinking that the journalists just would just kidding. start laughing. Yeah. Yes. And say, and then I could say, there's no lexicon. But yeah. that never happened. That is so funny. And so did they um quote you in this? They quoted me. And so I'd say like three weeks later, my mom called I'd forgotten about it. My mom calls and says, Jesus <laughs> Christ, run down to the star and grab the paper. <laughs> And so I did, and sure enough, it was all in there exactly as, you know, I mean, nothing was edited. And I was just like, oh, fuck. That my first, yeah, my first thought was, can I get in trouble for this? And then my my second thought, which was very quickly after that was like, yes. Of course, so, I would be like, yes. Well, especially because they encouraged it. It's not like you did something wrong. You just, yeah. you just bullshitted your way through, which is, you know, that's half yeah, of it anyway. Yeah. And at that time there was such a spotlight on Seattle and such yeah. a spotlight on the scene and, and it felt so gross watching all of this, just kind of, um, this music and this, this movement become just a commodity. And so there was kind of a, a lot of us had kind of a fuck you attitude about a lot of it. And yeah, and it was a fun way to say fuck you. I'm sure. So did you get like super into the industry back then? And um, were there women and are there women that kind of have brought you along or you've brought along? 
on the journey? Um, I would say I was at that time, it was even less about the industry for me and more about, um, I mean, I loved my jobs and I, I felt like all of my jobs were important, but um, like whether it was an intern or whether it was something with even greater responsibility, they all felt important, but I cared about um, like, I cared about being a part of something that meant a lot to me. I wanted to participate in a real meaningful way. And, and there were some women that I totally looked up to. I meeting Susan Silver, like she was an incredible, she was an incredible role model, even though I wasn't around her all the time. I watched what she did and I was so impressed with her ability to just navigate through such a crazy world. But there were other women too. Um, Susie Tennant, who worked in radio in Seattle. I felt like Susie was just so kind and gracious and generous with her time and always willing to help out other people. And I really looked up to Susie. I still do. And, um, and then years later, even someone like Kate Becker, who, you know, is, she works for um, Dow Constantine. And, and so she does so much public work that we all benefit from in King County. And, uh, but she's done, she has a lot of music experience. And I've watched people like Kate Becker do their thing. She started the Redmond Firehouse uh, so that there could be all ages shows in the Northwest. She's done really cool stuff. So I feel really fortunate that there were women that I really looked up to and, and I really admired. And I try very hard to be someone that, that folks can go to men or women who want help or want advice on how to get in uh, to this industry, but especially women, because we need, we always need more of them. Uh, I think at Sub Pop, we're really fortunate to have like a 50, 50 uh, ratio with men and women, but not. Oh, wow. That's, that's not typical. It's, I think it's because you've got a female uh, CEO, you know, females on the leadership team always makes a huge difference. Yeah, and we have uh, women in real leadership positions at the company, so um, I, it it probably all does make a big difference. And but I know that you know our situation isn't the same as everywhere else. So not at all. Yeah, tell me about the retail business. Uh, so when I was a salesperson, no, no, or, or the, the seventh half. So, no, just yeah. like, I mean, sub pops everywhere, the airport, like everybody, my husband has a sub pop hat. I need to get one. I need, I definitely need one. Yeah. <laughs> we can get cool. you one. Yeah, I need one. Um, so we have, so many years ago, actually, um, I remember having a conversation with Jonathan and we kind of were dreaming about how amazing it would be if we had a store at the airport, but it, honestly, it felt like just one of those things you say that like, that would be amazing, but you don't totally expect it to happen. Right. And and then some things in Seattle started changing. For example, uh, we there was an office of film 
that uh, was in the mayor's office, but that became an office of film and music. And when that became an office of film and music, there were little opportunities that started to open up and there were little shifts that started to happen. It was, um, it was run by James Keblis, who was one of the founders of the Vera Project, along with Kate Becker and another woman, Shannon Stewart. But uh, James really made some changes. And one of the changes was bringing some live music into public spaces like SeaTac Airport. And I remember going to a huge launch for live music being in the airport and meeting some of the port commissioners. And I asked them if they would ever be open to Sub Pop having a store. And they gave me their card and we talked a little bit, but it felt like the conversations fizzled out. And then a few months later, uh, my coworker, Nick Turner said, I got this phone call and someone at SeaTac wants to talk about maybe having a kiosk. And we were like, oh my God, that would be amazing. And we ran some numbers and we were like, I don't know if a kiosk makes sense, but we took the meeting uh, and at the end of the meeting, we were offered a temporary spot. And they said, it's probably good for about a year and a half but the store ended up doing great and we're still in that same location. And that was seven that's years great. ago. Yeah. No, it's super yeah. cool. And so um, I'm curious because obviously the, the world is changing. The music industry is changing. Um, you probably get asked this all the time, but is there, are there trends or like, what's your sense as far as the future of like the independent label world? Like what's it looking like going forward? It's yeah, it's funny because I think everyone has an opinion and I, I think there are a lot of folks who always feel like the sky is falling and then there are other folks who are like, you know, no, the sky is opening and I fall into that category. Uh, there is always a need for independent labels and independent artists. It is the very early stages of every artist's career and almost every artist and it is a point you know the the world that we work in is like this incredible incubator you know it is our jobs to make sure that that every artist is nurtured and has what they need so that they can learn what they need to learn in order to run their own business and to make the art that they want to make and if we can help support that you know, I mean, that's that's what we do. We we partner with them so that we can, you know, help market them and promote them and give them the tools that they need in order to do their jobs really well. And mm -hmm. and then we try to get their music out into the world as well as we're able. And and we continue to develop their careers while they're working with us. And, and we care so much about it, but there, there is always a need for that. Right. And, you know, I think without labels like Sub Pop or, you know, Secretly Canadian and Jag Jaguar and Merge Records and, uh, you know, all of these Suicide Squeeze, all of these, uh, Barsook, like without these important um, independent labels, you don't have the space for these artists to really come into themselves and and 
and grow. So I believe there is always a need. I believe that that our role in in the chain is crucial and it's rare that an artist can skip it. I mean, it does happen, but you know, our hope is that our work provides this foundation that is so solid that these artists can have lifelong careers and that they are able to that it's able to almost serve as an education so that mm -hmm. they can learn what they need how they operate best and and that they have these really important tools that they if they if and when they leave they are well equipped to carry on yeah well, I loved researching it because I don't know a ton about the industry and, you know, obviously in researching you and researching Sub Pop, I got to learn a little bit. So it was super cool. Um, and I got, I loved also just learning about you outside of work, the triathlons, the TM. Um, but my ultimate question for everyone on the podcast is what fuels you? What's your ultimate fuel? Um, you know, I think the thing that fuels me the most is um, I, I, I guess there are two things. One is I love seeing people succeed. So whether it's the artists, whether it's my coworkers, when you see someone do that thing that they didn't think was possible, and this kind of comes back to living in that space of we are capable of anything, um, that's a really good feeling to see people have that moment and to learn that what they do is important and that they are capable of something so beyond what they ever originally thought. Um, that makes me feel so good. And I, I, I know it makes a lot of my coworkers feel really good as well. Um, so that, and then I guess the other thing is, you know, there's nothing that, that I do that's like, you know, it's not like I'm doing surgery, you know, that's life-saving surgery, but there is, so, so I know it's not, you know, I'm not like necessarily saving lives in what I do, but I like to think that we are having an impact on the quality of someone's life. And that feels important, whether you're an artist and you are able to, you know, create art and have it out in the world or whether that's someone that that needs music to get through a day or get through a time or an experience or or just have that moment in a car where you can sing top volume to your favorite song and just have that fucking joy that i love that it you should have in a day so if we can bring those moments to people like that feels fucking good Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.